this is a drum I will be all day long, that we have to become more comfortable in a society with being uncomfortable. We don't get to just, you know, tie everything up in a pretty little bow, and we don't get to just feel warm and cozy all the time. Uh, we have to recognize and sit in discomfort, because that's where the growth often is. This is the Made for Living Well podcast, hosted by Alexa Sherm, the place to create a life well-lived. Welcome back to this podcast. As always, my name's Alexa. This is the place where I believe you were made for living well. And I'd love to say that because it's so opposite of what health usually is on this external pursuit or chase of something that you think will change your life. But really, if we dive into health and the human body, we know we have what we need. The goal is not to change your body, but work to support it. Now, I'm pretty excited that you're here because today we're talking about changing the loops, changing the mindset patterns that we get ourselves stuck in, and really how to create the change that you're looking for. Now, I've been talking a lot about change on the podcast because to me, it's so important. We can talk all day long about all of the right things that you should be doing or could be doing, but if you can't get yourself to do them, it's kind of a mute point. So today on the podcast, we're talking about why we get stuck in cycles, We're really talking about the minds at work and the trauma that we find in our past and how that keeps us stuck repeating old cycles. Now today I invited someone that I know personally on this show. She's incredibly smart. She has so much to teach and I was so honored that she would be here. Today, I'm interviewing Elise, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and owns a private practice as well as providing consultations and trainings. Elise has extensive experience working in a variety of settings with all ages throughout the lifespan. Treatment specialties include attachment-based parenting, anxiety and depression, and high or over-functioning individuals, grief and loss, and brain spotting which is another topic we're talking about here today, the power of brain spotting and how it works. But overall, Elise takes a holistic approach and assesses the whole person health. But one of the reasons I love Elise so much is that she takes a holistic approach and assesses whole person health. This is something that we all need to be doing more of. Instead of looking at specific segments, looking at the whole of the human. Throughout her career, Elise has worked at community, state, and national levels to increase access and reduce stigma for mental health needs in rural areas, as well as identify needs and introduce systemic changes to services. Again, I'm so honored to have Elise on the show as we start to talk about how do we break old patterns and old cycles and really move into healthy change. Now, before we get on to today's show, I do want to remind you, you can find more information about the show over at The Living Well. And over there, I share some more tips on how to break the cycle. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my emails. I send them out every single week called The Weekly Fill, and it's truly designed to help fill your week with energy, with encouragement, with motivation to do the things that you know you should. It's the real health email that no one talks about on this imperfect journey of living it out. So make sure you go to thelivingwell.com, sign up for the weekly fill email, and also check out that blog post. But for now, I want to get right to the show and welcome Elise. Welcome to the show, Elise. I am honored that you would come on the show. I've known you for quite a while, but and I've always wanted to have you on the show. And so it's finally happening, and I'm really excited about it. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. So I love talking about the mindset. And I think one of the things I struggle with here in the nutrition space is it's so much about mindset. You know, like it it really isn't as much of a food problem, although our food does influence our mind, but it's a lot of patterns and mindset loops that we get ourselves stuck in. and, And really understanding those is one of the greatest ways to change our health. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about trauma and mindset, and we're kind of just coming off of a podcast that got released last week that's all about why it's so difficult to change. So I want to know, like, why, why do you see people get stuck? And like, why do we tend to repeat old loops, even if we hate them? Sure. Yeah. So 
you know, the, the brain and the body want and, and need to be comfortable, right? We don't want to go anywhere outside of that comfortable space. And, um, you know, our physiological body does that as well. And so we have established pathways in our brains. And, you know, there's a saying that the neurons that fire together, wire together. And so at some point we have just pathways like worn trails you'd see in a forest in our brain. And we don't always have voluntary responses to how we react to things. And um, our bodies just kind of go on autopilot in a lot of ways. And that is definitely how people can get stuck. And although I'm not in the nutrition space as much as you are, um, our our cells get stuck too, Mm -hmm. right? If we are Mm -hmm. used to being a certain weight, and then we really challenge that and we work to, to change that, the body in some ways is going to fight to mm-hmm. maintain its homeostasis, right? Mm-hmm. So our brain does that too. Our body does that. So when we have these like repeated loops and patterns, is this directly coming from stored memories, our past? Is that how it's being influenced mostly? Is just a past experience? Well, I think it can be. Um, If you're familiar at all with epigenetics, there Mm -hmm. is an element of our lives, you know, that come from our ancestors even. And so um, there may be responses that we have that we don't understand why we have them. And sometimes it can be due to uh, ancestral trauma Mm -hmm. that is just kind of wired into the DNA. And I won't, I won't go into that too deep here today, but, um, you know, if you look at how minorities um, maybe treated or respond to some things. Some of it is very much part of just what's been kind of socialized and wired into their DNA over time. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's from our childhood. It's from before that. It's from socialization, uh, nurture, right, and how we're how things kind of play out as we're raised, and all of that has an impact on who we become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's really wild that so much of our life is just lived. And sometimes, like you said, the epigenetics case or this generational trauma is we can experience things that we don't even know sometimes how to process. Yes. Yes. It is wild. Um, If if people are interested and want to learn more about epigenetics, I would encourage them to, because it's just fascinating. Mm Mm-hmm. Because things can be passed down for quite a few generations. I'm not sure of the exact study that I saw, but they did trauma in mice. And was it three? What is it? In, do you know what it is in humans? How many generations? Uh, I don't. I know some of the stuff I have read is specific to like Jewish population mm. and some of the persecution and things that they've experienced. And um, uh, I don't have a, a specific generational link to that, but but we know it's there. Yeah, right. So when we start to look at change, because change is really hard for a number of aspects. Yes, yes it is. Uh, you know, I, I think we're moving into a society that understands or is at least getting more verbal about the need to deal with some of the past instead of just suppressing it and, you know, kind of packaging it up and moving it on. There, there's probably good and bad for both. I mean, I'm always a proponent of talking is that we're talking about mental health and, and trauma is good. But when it comes to repeated patterns, this is one thing that I feel like is hard for me to rationalize and understand is that if you are repeating a loop, you can talk about it. You can go to talk therapy, you know, do, do that work. But where's the line between using that as almost an excuse and healing from it? Like, do you ever see people get stuck in, well, that's just, that's just how I was raised, or that's just my story. Or do, do you know like where I'm kind of going with that? Yeah, question? yeah absolutely. And and you know, I think it, it's um it can it's kind of a both end situation. You know, um we can get stuck because we don't know our way out, or we don't know that there's an alternative. Mm. You know, I've had people sitting in my office, and you know, we're having a conversation, and I go, "Have you ever thought about this?" And they're like. No, that that never had even, you know, mm, been on their yeah. radar. And, you know, we all have to be really mindful that the the family culture that we're raised in is its own kind of um, being, if you will. 
right? And you, we experience this when we get married, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your family culture and your partner's family culture, uh, they can clash in a lot of ways. And, yes, um, <laughs> you know, and so like, you know, I think sometimes of these stories of like the big, loud, boisterous family and then the other family, you know, that doesn't talk about any feelings and, you know, there can be a lot of, a lot of kind of challenging things that, that will occur from that. And so, I mean, we get stuck for lots of reasons and the way that I feel is important to start working your way out of that one is you know what you already identified is acknowledging we have to to get some help we need to see a professional and try and get some support around that and the other thing is that our brain is a muscle and it's part of our body in in that same way and if we were going to train for a marathon i don't know about you but i'm not going to run one tomorrow Right. Um, (laughs) And if we were going to run a marathon, we would have gradual steps and a process to that, right? Like we do like couch to 5K and then maybe we do a few more 5Ks and we would do a half and and you really build up to it, right? And there's a process and kind of these patterns that you follow. That's a really nice like concrete measurable black and white thing. Mm -hmm. Um, The brain's not so easy, right? Mm. But... If we think about training our brain, it's also going to take regular time and -hmm. intention, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're training for a marathon, there's a few rest days, but not many. Mm -hmm. And um, if we're starting to rewire and train our brain to do different things, it has to be a daily intentional thing. Right. What are some ways that it looks like to, to do the work, to retrain your brain? Well, I mean, it's going to be different for everybody. I think probably where I usually start with somebody is that we have to increase that mind-body connection. Mm. Um, That's been socialized out of us. And, And what I mean by that is, you know, from a very young age, we're taught to ignore sometimes how we feel or our body. So, you know, if you have a little, a toddler that falls and you go, oh, you're fine. Get up. Come on, keep going. Right. That seems so uh inconsequential but if this is a pattern over time of how we respond to our child when they're hurt they're going to be taught not to pay attention right and it, it doesn't just happen with the skinned knee it happens with big feelings too and so you know increasing that mind-body connection uh, some of my probably preferred methods or where i re- really usually start with people is um slowing that mind down like we like to be busy we like to do a million things a day you know i that's probably a whole nother podcast if you want me to talk about (laughs) over busy families but anyway um the mind-body connection is slowing it down and so you know we have evidence that things like mindfulness guided meditation uh forest bathing time outside yoga um you know some of these may sound kind of silly to people but um, they really do make a difference. And probably one of the first things I do with people, especially if they're suffering from anxiety, is I have them breathe for a minute and count how many breaths they had. Mm-hmm. It's super awkward usually, right? And we're staring at each other, breathing and counting. And um, the premise being that a baseline for a person, if they're fully relaxed and comfortable, they're going to breathe about five times in a minute. Mm. And it is not uncommon for people to be in the teens and 20s. And yeah. So if that is our baseline and we are breathing rapidly, we're creating a feedback loop again with our breath, not fully getting oxygen to our brain um, to do some of this work as well. Mm-hmm. We're stuck in that mm-hmm. loop too. So it is really an intentional process of slowing ourselves down to breathe differently even. I mean, it. I know it sounds super rudimentary but how do we increase the mind body connection is starting to do things like that yeah i mean the mind body connection is a uh, i mean there's such an intimate connection and they're truly always communicating mm-hmm. to each other i mean even when we talk about like stored trauma you know I, I mean there's some books that have come out that have kind of made this known and i think it's been like an eye opening thing for a lot of people but i mean your biology is storing trauma yeah 
that has happened that we think might just be this mental issue, but really it's back and forth. Can you talk a little bit about sore trauma? Sure. And and why, why we do that? Well, yeah. And I mean, I think it, again, it's one of the things that we don't really always know or, or that we're aware of, Mm -hmm. but you know, if you have, let's say like an ankle injury in high school, right. You Mm -hmm. really badly sprain it or you break it. Um, you may go through PT and rehab it and return to your normal activity, but that doesn't mean there aren't going to be times where it gets tweaked a little bit or bumped the wrong way. Like you may always carry a part of that injury with you. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a very like tangible physical thing. Um, but the body does the same thing. And so um, I don't know about you, but when I'm driving in high stress situations, I have to make sure my shoulders aren't at my ears. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. And women tend to, uh, especially women, store a lot of their tension in their neck and shoulders. And um, just over time, that can become almost like a callus right? In your body and in your muscles. And the neurologically, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, our body does this too for like illnesses, right? We have like almost like a body memory of, yeah, you know, we tend to repeat cycles and, you know, people often get sick around the same time every year. And there, there's other things that we, we can see patterns in this. Mm-hmm. Is it a form of self-protection? Well, yeah, because you know, we, everything that we figure out how to do as we're growing up is, is an, a form of adapting. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So if you were a child that um, didn't get a lot of validation or attention, um, you would maybe learn that being hurt or having big displays of emotion would get that need met. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, or if you are somebody that commonly felt like you were left out and then you're in the office and you see half your coworkers all walking into a meeting you're not invited to, you can feel your yourself get hot, right? Yeah, and you can right. feel yourself tense up like, and it may have absolutely nothing to do with you, right? Like they could be having a meeting on safety and you're like in the catering department, you know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, but those feelings are there, mm-hmm. right? That feeling of being excluded, um, not wanted, right? Like you can just go down a whole rabbit hole about mm-hmm. what types of things can get activated um, from things, experiences like that. Right. It's it's the trigger. Like what what's going to trigger yes. you? And it can be wild things, maybe even things that you don't even understand where the trigger is coming from. Like I I still deal with that on occasion. I'm like, wow, I'm feeling really triggered, and I such it yep. seems so silly that I'm being triggered right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so. One of the things that I, I mean, I've done a lot of um, trauma healing and, and I would have been someone that was like, yeah, I mean, my childhood was pretty good. And, and yet when you really dig in, like I went through a lot, you know, and yeah, I think it's hard, like the childhood issue can be difficult because again, I think sometimes we want to just think, well, I'm an adult now that happened or, mm-hmm. and, and yet still live out of it. Right. Like I think in a lot of cases, people are just living out of, like you said, that child, childlike self. Mm-hmm. But when I did the trauma therapy and train, or you know, um, when I when I went through all the therapy work, one of the things I initially thought when I went into it was that I could get my trauma to leave, like that I could eventually get myself to a place where it no longer existed. I haven't found that to be true. Is that <laughs> is that correct? Like, am I on? Like, it's not like did I go in with the wrong opinion or should we expect this to leave? Or is this like, no, we have to learn how to deal with the trauma, the triggers, all the things that come with it rather than just escape. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I I think the answer is going to be really individualized. You know, I can't answer that for you or anyone else necessarily, but from what I observe, you know, uh, it, it would kind of be like taking a chapter out of a book. Mm-hmm. it's not going to make sense without it. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, we, we learn to heal our trauma in many ways and we learn how to stay regulated and connected when we're triggered. Mm-hmm. It is certainly a process of how to manage that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think it's, 
it's individualized too. Um, you know, you or I could witness the same uh, traumatic event and both of us would be impacted very differently, right? right? And you right. might just be yeah. able to to go do your thing and and it wouldn't really bother you that much. And I tend to be a bit more on the anxious side and have more kind of intrusive thoughts and I might replay that thing over mm-hmm. and over and over, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it really is one of those things where it's not going to be a one size fits all, but what we really want to do is figure out how we can move forward with it. We can't necessarily erase it, mm-hmm. um, but we can become pretty self-aware and grounded people who acknowledge and accept those parts of our story without mm-hmm. them defining or or making up the whole book, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's, the, there's a lot of power in the story that you've created surrounding. Yeah the experiences that you've lived through. Because like you said, you can see two people who've lived through the exact same thing and come out with very different stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is repressed memory, this is a side note, is repressed memory really not that accurate? You know, is that true? I, people have repressed memories. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've seen it happen. Um, I think we've been taught not to trust ourselves, right? Mm, Yeah. So if people go like, oh, I just remember this smell Mm -hmm. in this room. And I remember, you know, something about this really bothers me, but I don't know what. Like, there's likely more there. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also don't want to, like, get so lost in there that it, it makes us, you know, ruminate to the point that, you know, sometimes we have to be okay with not knowing it all or having it all figured out. Mm, yeah. Right. And in a, you know, one of my focus uh, treatment areas is grief and loss and gosh, we want answers. We right. want someone to blame. We want to find, you know, like this is the thing mm-hmm. to be angry at or whatever. And, you know, I think that may be something we have to really navigate here on earth and and as we acknowledge living in a sinful world that sometimes there are not reasons for anything right you know yeah that's hard because i feel like our biology is designed to finish loops and we can see how powerful finishing the story is why we hate like to be continued you know like and and why Netflix is so popular because people can binge things like we don't like to not know the ending which makes things yeah. like grief really difficult yes. because there and is an yeah. open loop almost in our biology. Right. Uh, something unfinished mm-hmm. and that we may, we may never have um, the conclusion to here on earth. So is it harmful yeah. to, to create a, an ending or an assumption? I mean, obviously we're people who create a lot of assumptions because of this. When you look at someone like that, that has an open loop, who can't figure out the why or the understanding behind it, do you have to get okay with leaving it open, uh, unknown, mm-hmm. or is it, or do you have to create a better story through that, like a better ending? You know, I, I don't know if I'm wording that well, but. Ooh. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the main principles of uh, brain spotting, which is a modality that I practice, is that nothing is certain. And that we have to keep ourselves within that uncertainty principle because uh, I don't know that answer for you or for whoever I may be working with in that space and time. And they may not know it either. And and I think if we marry ourselves to the idea that there has to be a finish or there has to be a resolution, uh, we're going to chase ourselves into, you know, some really dark places. Yeah. Which I feel like our world is training us to go there. Oh, yeah. We don't for sure. train ourselves with open loops as often as we used to because we can yeah. do everything. Yeah. Like the well, un- and, and comfortable feeling of uncertainty is diminished in our world. Absolutely. And, you know, I, th- this is a drum I will be all day long that we yeah. have to become more comfortable in a society with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get to just, you know, tie everything up in a pretty little bow and we don't get to just feel warm and cozy all the time. Uh, we have to recognize and sit 
in discomfort. Yeah. Because that's where the growth often is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's tons of research too that shows that the happiest people are the ones who've gone through the most pain. Like we can't have that, the same joy without having pain. Um, right. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're familiar with the movie Inside Out, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Therapists get all excited about that movie because mm-hmm. well, obvious reasons. But w- what do we learn in the end, you know, was that those core memories became so amazing and positive for her because there were parts of them that began in sadness. Mm-hmm. Right. And that you you don't know, they can't necessarily exist one without the other. Right. Yeah. And I feel like we live in a world and I think what a lot of my listeners struggle through based on comments and emails that I get back is, is, is we do live in a world that portrays a level of perfection of everyone's mm-hmm. happy. Everyone's living their best life. Everyone's house is perfect. Everyone's going on vacation. And it feels like there's, we know pain exists but it feels like a lot of people aren't going through pain. And so it feels like our pain is, is sabotaging our life instead of using that to enhance our life. Do do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, it feels like we're living in this alternate reality of like what we see and what we're experiencing don't align. And, and we're almost chasing that perfection when really that's not the end to a better life. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you're talking about, we get to see everybody's highlight reel, right? Yeah. And um, the the comparison trap and, and just all the things that that can create. And and then if we're that person that's like, hey, things are really hard right now. Mm-hmm. Like we get a lot of people going, keep your chin up yeah. and think positive. And, you know, we're not really even allowed um, to be real sometimes in those ways because it makes other people uncomfortable. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I've dealt with that a lot um, where, you know, I might be talking to somebody about something going on and they go, well, well, yeah, you know, that's just too bad or that's how it is. Or, you know, and they just, whatever I'm sharing has made them so uncomfortable that they can't, they can't go there. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. That's where they are. Right. right. But I think we're, we as a society are, are craving those deep vulnerable connections where we can meet each other in those spaces mm-hmm. and not just see the highlight reel. Right. Yeah. And I love how you just said that, the, um, you know, like some people aren't comfortable with other people's pain. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I think getting uncomfortable with uncomfortable feelings, getting uncomfortable with a lot of feelings is valuable in all aspects of life, including health. You know, I have a lot of people who aren't comfortable with feeling a little bit hungry or who aren't comfortable with feeling too full, you know, like we're just, we're really uncomfortable with a lot of things, but we're not comfortable with uncomfort. And so we try to escape it in all areas that we can, including how we interact with other people and the people around us. And I, I still do this like with my husband, Peyton, sometimes his feelings feel too uncomfortable to me, especially like I am more comfortable with hard emotions. I think because I am like, I'm a recovering pain addict. <laughs> like I loved pain <laughs> and because that was what was safe. Like I knew how to deal with pain. I didn't know how to deal with things going well. Um, sure. and so, and he's kind of the opposite. Like the way he dealt with his trauma was to make things always seem good. And so that mm, feels so mm-hmm. threatening to me. We are literally are the exact opposite. And that has been really hard because that is really triggering to me. But again, to recognize why am I uncomfortable with that feeling also has been a challenge of mine. But it brings me to a question of like, you know, I feel like sometimes in that case, I find myself self-sabotaging as protection. And I think people do this in a lot of different areas. You know, it's like, I want the healthier diet. I want to do these things. I want to create the change. But the change feels so different that they end up self-sabotaging. Why do yeah. we self-sabotage? Is I guess what I'm asking. You know, um, I hear from people a lot of times, um, they'll just say it doesn't matter. Hmm. What difference does it make, right? Or why try? It never works. And um, just kind of being in this space of, you know, why make any effort if uh, if it's not perfect, right? And you talked about this society and, you know, everyone kind of chasing perfection, 
you know, I think we bring that into kind of our, our health and nutrition as well. Like if I can't do it perfectly, right. You know, and if I eat something that maybe isn't so great for me, my whole day is blown. Well, that's mm-hmm. not true. Right. Like we know that the next time you eat, you can change it, right. <laughs> you know, but our brains don't approach it that way. And, you know, we, it, it's very black and white in that respect. And so uh, we do get stuck in these kind of spaces of like, it doesn't matter anyway. So why try? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a an issue of hope. It can be, you know, and it can be that they've tried a lot of things and they didn't work. Right. You know, and, and especially when, um, you know, we're talking about things like nutrition and weight loss or trauma. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. There has to be, you know, it, it's a, it's a holistic thing. And so, like if somebody comes to me to to really work on their anxiety, but their thyroid levels are out of control, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know why they're anxious, right? But it, it may just be that they're also dealing with anxiety as well. But until their hormones are uh, a little more regulated, they're going to have a really hard time interrupting that anxiety loop because their body is kind of overriding. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's never just a one mm-hmm. thing, you know? And so you kind of have to have all hands on deck sometimes of, you know, working with your mm-hmm. providers and, you know, making sure that every aspect has been looked at um, so that we're not sitting there blaming ourselves for why we can't seem to get out of a loop that um, our body has stuck us in. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. People always ask me if it's a chicken or the egg. And I just feel like it's a continuous loop, you know, like I feel like it's so personal for everyone where it starts, if it's the body or the mind, but they all just run together and it makes it difficult. Yeah. You know, like you really have to support both ends. Yeah. And and if you're just approaching it from one thing, like, and I'm going to be careful and not go way off track here, but you know, we have a very predatory society as far as like weight loss and dieting goes. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody is telling you that these supplements in this shake are going to fix it all for you, you know, um, and we haven't looked at some of the other aspects and then you, you do that in good faith and with hope and then it doesn't work, you know, yeah, yeah. it's reaffirming that negative, negative loop that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when you work with people, you mentioned brain spotting, which is a concept I know a little bit about, but not a lot about, but I really do think it's fascinating. Can you explain what brain spotting is and what a person gains from brain spotting? Sure. Yeah. So brain spotting, um, I don't know if you've talked about before. Um, we have with your not listeners about, what... about brain spotting. Okay. Have you talked about EMDR? A little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, EMDR is kind of like the the established evidence-based, you know, we have a lot of information about it. It's been around a long time. Brain spotting is born out of EMDR. So it's not like an either or thing. It's like the both end. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been around for quite some time now, but it has not gained the same kind of traction or popularity necessarily as EMDR. I think it is starting to. Um, but the reason I chose to to get trained with brain spotting, I was looking, um, I had found a couple EMDR trainings. So I thought, oh, I'm going to try that. And then for you know one reason or another, it didn't work out. And I um, started to research more into brain spotting. And what really drew me to it is I'm a, I'm a very holistic practitioner mm-hmm. and brain spotting is a very kind of organic, gentle, integrative way to, to do similar things like EMDR. And it's, uh, I've been practicing now for three years. I got trained right before the pandemic. And then I went, I did more trainings throughout, but it has absolutely transformed my practice. It's transformed my clients. It's just been an amazing tool. And it it really meets people wherever they are, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about that uncertainty principle, and if you feel like something, there, there's no hope for it, you know, we can go to that space. Um, and, and there doesn't have to be a, a set yes or no kind of answer to, to resolving that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's gentler, it's more organic and people will argue whether or not it's more effective. I've had people who have done both, you know, EMDR and then tried brain spotting. 
And in general, the consensus is they feel brain spotting is more effective. Mm. And my, you know, observation of that is just because it's very client-led and very organic. So how how does it work? Can you explain? So, yeah. yep. so EMDR, the, the premise behind EMDR is that the eyes go back and forth. Mm-hmm. And what happened with brain spotting is um, the founder, Dr. David Grand, was doing an EMDR session with a figure skater. And she was following his hands and going back and forth with his eyes, or her eyes, I'm sorry. And at one point, her eyes froze in place. And instead of prompting her to keep moving her eyes, Mm -hmm. he stayed there with her. And it was that session that more was processed and kind of worked through than had been the prior year and a half they'd been working together. Mm. So he started to kind of explore this idea of instead of making the eyes move, what if we found fixed eye positions associated with events, feelings, um, trauma, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so for this particular skater, she was having trouble landing a triple loop, I believe. And uh, so they were kind of processing that. What she processed in that time when her eyes were in the fixed position had obviously nothing to do with her triple loop. But the next day she called him and said that she'd been able to land it. And more than once. Yeah. And so, you know, they started with the premise of, okay, what's getting in the way of you being able to land this jump? And um, her brain went there, mm-hmm. helped her process what was there, and then the body responded. Mm-hmm. So my, I'm sure someone is listening, thinking, what's the deal with the eye movements? Why is that a necessary eye placement? Why is that necessary in, in this form of therapy? Sure. So with EMDR, the, the premise being that the eyes go back and forth to help desensitize to the trauma. Um, with brain spotting, it's where you look affects how you feel. And so what I will often do with people is um, first establish like an eye position for them where they feel really safe and calm. Mm. And it's going to be different for everybody. And, you know, there are things that they train us in and what to look for and how to help guide a person there. Mm-hmm. But also then once we're there, like, how do we help them create that connection between the brain and body to then do work further? Mm-hmm. So more than talk therapy, this is combining almost like a biological response to connect it all. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that taught me about myself, because they make you do brain spotting, right? That's how you get trained and and practice with other people. And I had never known this about myself, but when I was in really uncomfortable situations, I would tend to look down into my left and that was totally how I was regulating myself. Mm. Right. And I had no idea Mm because, you know, you just don't think about it. Right. right? (laughs) Everyone's wondering where are their eyes? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I'm telling you, after I start to introduce this with clients, they come back and go, guess what? When mm-hmm. I'm in this situation, I look over here and mm-hmm. I was like, okay, you know, and it's creating awareness for what they're already doing. They just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And when we find eye positions associated with really painful things, with the right process and guidance, people can work through some pretty big stuff. Mm. And yeah. it, it really, I, I don't even know, I, I couldn't even say, it's just... I have seen people transformed um, just by the ability to be in that space in those painful parts and process through those things in a safe way. It's just incredible to me. I, I just, I'm honored uh, every, every time that I get to, to help support people through that. So is brain spotting, you're still talking through it? You can. That's you not don't required. Have to. Yeah. So you know, and um, the, there have been times where I am quiet most of the session. Mm. Yeah. And and they're processing through it themselves? Yes. And occasionally, like, and some people are very verbal mm-hmm. and, and saying, you know, I just thought about this and, oh, it comes from that. And why didn't I think about this? You know, and they're they're putting pieces together. Yeah. And, and sometimes they're very quiet. And yeah. then, you know, maybe after a while, they'll tell me what they were doing. Or what was going through their mind at that time. Um, 
but it, it is so individualized and that's why I really, really like it is because um, there's no set protocol necessarily like there might be with EMDR. Yeah. Um, it is totally client driven. Uh-huh. Like they are in the driver's seat. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's cool. I, I think it's really, I think, I think people need to understand that there's a lot of different forms of therapy to deal with things. And yes, you know, I think some people are just really turned off by talk therapy. In fact, like even when we look at the biological, biological aspect between, you know, a male and a female, how one responds biologically varies greatly where a female, yeah. you know, might, it might actually enhance their hormones to talk about it where a male, I mean, we, we can see declines in testosterone and, and some of these mm-hmm. other, you know, masculine traits that, um, can help them heal actually can decline sometimes in, in the talk form. Um, not always, but there is some, some research out there that would show that. So, so I think it does offer insight to say like, there are other forms to heal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there really are. And I would encourage anybody who's tried traditional therapy or talk therapy or cognitive behavioral known as CBT, you know, mm-hmm. um, these are all very common and a lot of people do them, but there are lots of amazing modalities out there. You know, there's internal family systems, which is all parts work. There is um, acceptance and commitment therapy. There's, you know, just, you can really, uh, there's art therapy, you know, if you're a very creative person. So I would just encourage people, you know, if what you've tried hasn't worked, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to try again. Like it's totally okay to uh, interview or screen a therapist, find out what they do, you know, how they could help you. Mm-hmm. It's okay to try a couple sessions and not go back if it's not a good fit. You know, mm-hmm. like it does not, at least for me, it does not hurt my feelings. Like yeah. my goal is that they find what they need mm-hmm. and it's okay if that's not me. Yeah. Right. 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 And sometimes like, I mean, I've had a number of different therapists and for no other reason than I felt like it was just like, okay, we kind of did the work that we needed to with this. And like every single one, yes. I felt like I had a level of healing. It was just like, okay. I felt like there was a time when I kind of got stuck with one and it was like, we weren't really making like, I don't know. We just weren't, you know, it worked for yeah. a while. And then all of a sudden it was just like, I think I just need something else or I need to be pressed or in a different way or, um, yeah. And, and then I had one that was yeah. like all online. And then it was like, well, I think I need to be in person for this or I don't know, you know, it was just kind of like you said, finding <laughs> it. And I felt like all of them were fantastic. It was just something different a little bit for a different yeah. of life. But, okay. Do you think everyone who, do you think everyone has trauma? First of all, well, I mean, if we're, if we're human living on earth, then I think we do all have levels of trauma. Yeah. Levels of trauma. Do you think everyone needs to unpack it? Or do you think some people can live without being affected by it? Like almost like I sometimes think about a parasite because I think we live in a world right now where everyone's scared of parasites. And I'm like, we've had parasites for our whole entire existence. And we're living very synergistically with most of them. <laughs> like there are yeah, parasites I mean, that are bad, yeah. right? So is it like sure. the idea of like, we all have trauma but can some of us really just process through it without needing help? Like, can can some people really exist without being affected by it? I mean, I think that the answer to that is going to be as varied as the the person hearing it, mm-hmm. right? Like, I I think you know, you said like living with parasites. Like, there are plenty of parasites we all probably live with in our gut and everywhere else, you know, or uh, mites in our beds, and you know, yeah. um, that that don't impact us that much. But there might be somebody who has a severe allergy to dust mites, you know? Yeah. Uh, why is that? I yeah. don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to respond to trauma the same way. Mm-hmm. This is what's hard for me is like, have you ever heard of German new medicine? No. Okay. So it's the idea that a lot of the conditions, biological conditions that we would develop um, have an emotional component to them. Mm. Um, and so... This is my thing. It was like, sometimes I think we can all live synergistically to it, or we can say that we are. But what if, what if you reach the point where now it is having a biological effect of like, could that have been prevented if I would have dealt with, you know, like, how do you know if you need to deal with it or if you're just trying to run away from it? So this is what I would say to that. And, and this is kind of how I help people quantify a little bit if they're struggling to know, like, it, you know, are things getting better? Or is it helping? You know, what's going on? Or is this even a problem? Mm-hmm. And I really kind of go by the more often than not principle. So if more often than not, this particular issue 
is, you know, very kind of mildly inconvenient, but not really disruptive in your life, mm-hmm. you know, would it hurt to unpack that and deal with it? No. Mm-hmm. Do you need to, to live the most, you know, full life? Mm-hmm. Probably. But, I, you know, I think there are lots of people that can kind of skate between the lines, right? Yeah. Um, but if there is something that is very disruptive, more often than not, right, that mm-hmm. is interrupting your daily functioning or how your relationships function or how you eat or how you move your body, like more often than not, is this getting in the way? Is this a barrier? Then absolutely it needs to yeah. be mm-hmm. worked out with somebody. Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah. That really clarifies it. Okay. I know I'm like pushing the time here. So just a couple more questions, although I could talk to you for a long time. Um, <laughs> We're going to find a few subtopics out of here. Yeah, I, sure. I for sure am. I already have, I'm already writing them down. So. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, uh, I kind of you know, I, I think I've mentioned this a little bit in this podcast, but I have a hard time again. Another fine line for me is like, how do you empathize with your victim self without living in a victim world? Mm. I love how you worded that. You know, how do you empathize with your victim self? I think the the key component here is this idea that we have to have self-compassion. Mm. And that's a very hard thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I can sit and acknowledge and have compassion for the fact that a particular situation really raises my blood pressure. And, you know, I, I feel anxiety about that. I might lose sleep about that. I can have compassion for how that impacts me. And I can challenge myself and do the work and and process to get regulated to a space where that doesn't dominate. Mm, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's a both end again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's no certainty of, of black and white always that we can have compassion for the the pain and the trauma and the experiences that we've been through and acknowledging that we don't have to stay there. Mm, yeah. Like it's, it's that chapter in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's there. Mm-hmm. And if we took it out, the, the book wouldn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just the chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. I like, I like that a lot. So good. Okay. Last question. What there, there's so much information in the world. And we talked a little bit about this before we jumped on the podcast, but we are living in information overload. Most of the information is probably not coming from people who actually have studied this like you have. And it makes it confusing. It makes it really hard to sort through what is true, what is not. When you look at the world of, you know, mindset work and and mind-body connection, what are some truths you really want to make known or, you know, some misconceptions that you want to add truth into to kind of set the record straight? Do you have, do you have a few just like <laughs> big points that you want to, you want to throw out there? And it's not to throw, you know, other people under the bus, but like, just to say like, th- this is a truth here. This is something yes. that works. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the a, a big key takeaway that I would want people to get from this is that there is no one fix for everyone and that we have to be very discerning advocates for ourselves in our specific situations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to have a discerning eye as we're looking at, you know, person's experience, training, credentials, um, you know, where does this information come from? And it's okay to take some information from somebody and reject the parts that aren't going to work. Right. Right. Um, and, and filter through that a little bit. And I would say it's also super important that we don't kind of restrict ourselves to living in an echo chamber. Mm. So it's, we, we can't just have people around that are going to always agree with us or mm. think the same way we do or vote the same way we do. You know, as as iron sharpens iron, we have to be willing to be challenged yeah. and 
look at different perspectives and kind of uh, be willing to grow, mm-hmm. right? And that comes back to that thing of being okay with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it's not something that we really, you know, it's not talked about and it's certainly not encouraged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if those were some of the things that I would want people to kind of take away, I think those would probably be some of the big ones for me is that, you know, that real growth happens when we begin to take a real discerning eye, become more comfortable with being challenged and acknowledging, you know, where we are and what we can glean from someone. And also maybe we don't have to pick up the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You have been a wealth of information. I really have written out like three or four more topics. Oh no. (laughs) I'm like, oh, we could talk about this for a whole show. I thank you so much for being here. It has been truly an honor. Um, Like I mentioned, I wanted you on the show for a long time and we finally made it happen. And so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come on the show. Well, I appreciate you having me and I appreciate everyone who who listens and is willing to, to challenge themselves in those ways too. Yeah, it's it's not easy work, but I always say it's worth it work. Yeah, it's important work. Yeah, for sure. And not just important for you, but for, like you said, generations to come are being influenced by the work that we do and how we live our lives and the health health of us. Absolutely. And instead of seeing that as a responsibility or pressure, we can see it as, you know, the privilege. Mm -hmm. A gift that we can give. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for being here. Thank you. I love Elise and I learn so much every single time I talk to her. She's a gem and honestly, one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. Now, you can learn more about this show and get additional information and help and practices over at thelivingwell.com. I've written an entire blog post about taking things to the next level and really healthifying your thoughts and getting unstuck. So make sure you check that out at thelivingwell.com. If you like this podcast, you're going to want to stick around this summer because the summer series is about breaking old stories and building a new one in health. I'm so pumped to go through it. It's kind of the work that we talk about, but we don't really do because maybe we don't know how to do it. Well, this summer I'm breaking it down step by step and we're going to do it together. So make sure you stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we have lots of great podcasts coming your way. The next podcast is a new month with a new podcast with a new planner topic on how to like yourself, which is coming out next week with my husband, Peyton Sherm. So stay tuned for that, but don't forget to head to The Living Well to learn more about the show, sign up for the weekly fill, and check out other articles that you're going to love. Okay, that's it for now, and I will see you back here next week.